This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So welcome once again to the BBC Music Magazine podcast, your one-stop shop for all things classical music, live, broadcast and recorded. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor. With me in the studio today are editorial assistant Freya Parr and deputy editor Jeremy Pound. Hello. Hello. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast. So before we get started, do head out and buy the April issue out now with Alison Balsam on the cover. Better still, if you fancy subscribing with a special discount for our podcast listeners, you can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost of just £25.15, which is a real bargain. And you can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash music podcast. Right, well, it's time for music news, and I think it's time for me to go first. So um, here's a bit of a clue to what I'll be talking about. So that was an extract from Vivaldi's Winter from the Four Seasons uh, on this recording performed by Iona Brown with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. And that was uh, from our cover disc on the January issue. But what I'm referring to is uh, the BBC's new tranche of 10 pieces that they've just announced. Um, 
the, the new 10 pieces, which is a series of 10 pieces uh, designed to encourage children to um, really explore classical music in all its wonderful glory. Uh, 10 pieces includes Vivaldi, but also wonderful pieces by Basiewicz, Steve Reich, Villa Lobos, Florence Price, um, Brahms, Gershwin, and they're all under the, the banner of trailblazers. So all of them did things differently with music, uh, things pushed music along. So I went recently to the launch at Broadcasting House um, at the BBC, and it was very exciting. I've got to say I'm very impressed by the the Ten Pieces scheme and how they've kept it going now kind of into their their next instalment. And it is really working. Um, Only the other day my son was telling me that his school, they begin every Monday morning with a piece from the Ten Pieces, and they play it, and they have a nice big picture of the composer up with his dates. And so all the kids at my son's school know all about Ten Pieces and about the composers therein. And they've got a really big... so. Hans Zimmer's doing the commission this year. They always have one person doing a new piece for it, and he's doing this year's one. That's a massive name to get involved, so should hopefully lead to more awareness of it. Yes, and 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 the BBC produces, as usual, very good teacher resources. Yeah. Um, so schools can really get stuck in, and you know, mm. there are a lot of hard work will be done already for them. So there's, well, mm. there's no excuse. And while I am pre- kind of slightly flying the BBC flag here, as you'd expect us to, um, it has to be said that. There's always one or two cynics when these things are first launched and people said, oh, will this last? And it really has had a lasting effect. This scheme has been brilliant. Wonderful. So, um, Freya, I think we're leading on to more chat about Radio 3, in fact. Yes, we're very BBC heavy this morning. Um, so they've just announced um, a whole new raft of programmes and presenters. Um, and they've actually got Jess Gillam on board, the saxophonist, who I believe is 20. Um, so that's their youngest presenter yet. Um, and she's doing a Saturday programme called This Classical Life when she sort of talks to other young musicians about their experiences in the industry um, and pieces of music that have really like caught their attention. Um, so that's really exciting. And then they've also kind of elaborated on the Classical Fix podcast and programme that Clancy Burton-Hill's been doing. And they're now doing Opera Fix with Danielle Denise because apparently... Um, they kind of explained why they went into that on Classical Fix podcast and Clemency found that actually opera was one of the areas of music that most intimidated the guests. So they're kind of wanting to open that up even more. Um, so that'll be interesting. I, th- I think it's interesting that, 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 you know, when you're young, you, you might not think that Radio 3 is for you. Mm. Uh, and I think these new sort of tweaks of the programmes will, will, will sort of speak to new areas of mm. the population, new sort of demographics that say, actually, well, this is presented by someone who's my age, who, um, you know, obviously listens to music that I listen to. Um, and, and, and therefore, I feel I can, I can tune in. I feel I can listen and take part. Mm. And the guests that they've got for Classical Fix previously have been people that are really in the zeitgeist, kind of millennials, very familiar with them. Um, and when you've kind of got that search function on podcasts, it's a really great way of getting people sneakily in the back door into classical music because people will search for those individuals and then come across this. So, yes, lots of change. It's also worth pointing out that kind of older people also like listening to young people presenting programmes as yeah. well. It's not just young, you know, young programmes for younger people. Yeah. It's actually it's nice to have a change of tone for a change just Definitely. from the middle-aged people the whole time. Jeremy, you're going to be talking about the South Bank now, so off BBC onto the South Bank. Yes, but there is actually a bit of a theme running here because it's all um, our kind of coverage of the news this month has been all about bringing new people into mm. classical music, and this is exactly what the South Bank's new Encounters scheme is planning to do. Now, this is quite an ingenious thing. Is what it is is that um, they are inviting people who have never been to a concert before to come to one of the concerts at the South Bank, and that is primarily the Royal Festival Hall, in the company of a leading musician. 
So they will actually get a personal guide from the likes of pianist Stephen Huff, violinist Nicola Benedetti, conductor Marin Allsop, tenor James Gilchrist, so a right wide range of musicians. And they will actually individually accompany these first-timers into the concert hall and explain what's going on because it's kind of say why this is happening, kind of what this piece of music is about. The idea is that that first-timer will then actually be encouraged to go and actually persuade one of their friends to come along. And that friend will also be allowed in for free. And the idea is that they'll then spread out. You'll have this whole new generation of people infusing about the subject and actually encouraging their friends to come along. Yeah, I mean, we know what it's like to chat to all these uh, musical celebrities and talk to them about music. Mm. And I think it should be very exciting. I remember sitting in front of Mark Anthony Turch. I think, actually, Mark Anthony is one of the is, um, yeah. one of the people on the yeah. scheme. So I was sitting in front of him for his opera, Anna Nicole, at the Royal Opera House. And it was <laughs> wonderful. Well, it was wonderful <laughs> being able to talk to him about the production and about the performance yeah. and real so so I think everyone's in for a treat. Yeah, and it can be an intimidating place a concert hall if you're a complete newcomer. So great way to break down those boundaries. And there's only so much you can do with program notes in a yeah. in a program, to be frank. So actually having that as you said, that first hand experience would be phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, very exciting. And Richard Morrison talks about it as well in this issue. So that's really indeed. worth reading. So now let's move off news and onto this month's magazine. This month's So don't forget about our website at classical-music.com. You can read about all the latest goings-on, thousands of reviews, lots of stuff. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. So do go and check us out. Sign up to our newsletter. You can find details about how to come to our awards on the 10th of April. Always great fun at King's Place near King's Cross in London. So you get a chance to mingle with us. Um, and also some of the winners and hear performances and just generally have a wonderful time. So it's time to talk about the April issue. Jeremy, the big star of our cover, Alison Bolson, why is she on the cover? Right, well, Alison is on the cover because April this year is all about festivals. Now, every year we have a big festival guide in BBC Music magazine. Um, but this year we're going one step further. We're actually talking about it at the front of the magazine. Alison Balsam is the newish artistic director of the Cheltenham Music Festival. Um, she was in post last year, but um, she didn't actually do any pro programming last year because it had already been sorted before she started. So this is the first year that she's actually really seen her own festival programme being put in place. And I went along to meet her and she told me all about kind of the, the difficulties and the joys and the various things you have to juggle to be actually to be able to manage a festival. It was fascinating chatting to her. Mm. And also uh, Michael White, one of our writers, has written a wonderful sort of survey of festivals and also what it takes to put on a festival somewhere where there isn't usually music at any other time of the year. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the amount of volunteers and goodwill that you rely on to put these things together. I mean, we're very lucky. Hundreds of festivals and you know, all of them, with so much going on and, and so much talent. Putting a festival together is an absolute art form because people mm. always turn up and think, oh, well, they've just got this concert and that concert and that concert. What they don't realise is how many balls you have to juggle to actually be able to get the artists, the venues, everything in the same place at the same time. And obviously things don't go right, they don't work out. And you have you start with this creative vision 
but it might not always work out exactly. So then you have to compromise. That we have such amazing festivals each summer is just little sort of short of miraculous, really. And, and of course, the best artistic directors will naturally integrate education and naturally integrate all the social stuff and and little fringy events and talks without it looking forced. And those are the that's the time when when the magic happens, really. And also achieve a sense of continuity and yet push forwards into new areas without kind of irritating their kind of diehard customers. It's it's, it's an art. So buy your tickets, get out and have a look at our April issue and, and, and mark in your diaries which festivals 62 to to. pages about festivals in there total. Are, which is <laughs> remarkable. So Freya, what have you got for us this month? Well, we are going to start off with listening to the winner of our greatest film theme poll that we did with Radiotimes.com. So we'll listen to it and see if you can guess what it is. So that was obviously John Williams's theme to Star Wars, um, and that was the winner of our poll that we did with Radiotimes.com when we tried to find out the greatest film theme of all time. Um, so we basically opened it up to the public to vote from a list of 40 that we'd chosen, um, which were kind of represented from all throughout the ages of classic cinema and contemporary cinema. And yeah, it, the, I think we all kind of knew that John Williams would feature pretty prominently, but he was actually uh, featured six times in the top 10. So clearly he's doing something very right. So actually in, in this issue, um, Michael Beek, our reviews editor and film buff, um, talks to Patrick Doyle, who's a film composer, uh, and he composed Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Hamlet, Sense and Sensibility, a few other things. Um and kind of sort of unravels as to what makes an amazing film theme. This is important. It's not soundtracks talking about here. It's actually yeah. themes. So, you know, there are lots of great soundtracks that have been written over mm. the past few years, but actually very few that actually contain themes that we'd all go home and hum and really that, that sort of in, that, that are embedded in our yeah. in our brains, those earworms that are really difficult, so difficult to write. And John yeah. Williams has clearly got that incredible talent to craft a tune. Mm. Star Wars is the sort of soundtrack to my youth as well. Yeah. So because when it first came out, I was at primary school. I remember we all wanted to go and see it. And the first time we, I tried to go to see it, uh, it was sold out. So we had to come back into Oxford <laughs> another time. And it, so it's kind of it sends a real frisson down my yeah. spine when I hear it. It's hard as well because you've got to kind of make a theme that works within the context of the film, but also has a life outside. So you think of something like Jaws, that's become kind of notorious beyond, like I've never seen Jaws, but you can't not know that film theme. Well, as Michael says, you know, kids singing in the swimming pool exactly. to, scare their, you know, yeah. to scare their friends. And, uh, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark always, you know, when you're on an adventure somewhere, yeah. like the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme always pops into your head. It's it's it's, it's real sort of magic, yeah. isn't it? That yeah, we cross. definitely sung Star Wars in the playground oh, as we were kind of shooting up imaginary stormtroopers and things yeah. like that. <laughs> so from uh, Star Wars themes to um, a rather sort of, uh, well, a rather sadder story about um, instruments that get broken um, as they're being transported around the world. Of course, musicians have to take their instruments on airlines and cellists uh, normally have to book themselves seats these days. But um, some people have decided to risk it and put them even in hard cases. And John Evans tells the story of some particularly terrible occasions when uh, instruments have arrived on the carousel smashed. Um, the airline 
industry is still really has still to wake up to the problem of taking instruments on board because violins are slightly bigger than the suitcases they generally allow. But you know there has to be some sort of give and take, really, mm. um, and, and 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 you know it must be really nerve wracking to see your instrument disappear and then come back again on the carousel and wonder whether it's in the same shape as it was when you left it. If you see it at all, that is half yeah. the time, frankly. Well, that's very true. Um, so you know it, it is it is very important, and we do give it a bit of advice um, in, in in the feature. It's it's very important that you do get the right insurance. You look mm. after your instrument and you don't put it in the hold. Um, I guess the encouraging thing from the from the feature, though, is that at least airlines do very slowly but surely seem to be understanding the situation a little bit better. They're not quite as kind of gung-ho about it all as they used to be, and they actually realise that there is an issue there. I think it depends on the airline, frankly. Yeah, well, that's true. I, I think the, the, the problem is that while, while there may be a policy, the staff on the ground, who no doubt are rushed off their feet having to organise everything, um, aren't necessarily on top of the policy. Mm. So you may... You know, argue all you want, but unless the person down on the ground says yes, you can go on with your violin or your mm. bassoon or whatever it is, then then I think there's always going to be a there's always going to be a bit of a standoff. Well, there are some artists who completely boycott the whole thing entirely and choose to get trains or other means of transport. Because I guess if you have, I mean, I'm a flute player, so I'm jammy and I can just pop it in my backpack. But if you're a double bass player, like. How are you ever going to work out a system in getting that from me? Well, you borrow a double bass, don't you, when you're yeah, at the other end? True. And I think a lot of orchestras don't take double basses because mm. they use double basses the other end. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I play the organ. I, mean, I can't imagine taking a pipe organ to on a plane. <laughs> Uh, but I think when you're under that mid-size instrument like the yeah, bassoon tricky. or the trombone or, or the, you know, I mean, the, the story won't, no, no, no plot spoilers here, but the historical instrument damaged um, is the story of that in our feature. Mm. And that's a big instrument, um, you know, maybe small enough to book into the hold and risk it. I don't mm. know. I don't know. So that's uh, called Broken Chords and it's a story in the April issue written by John Evans. So, as the jingle said, it's time for First Listen. This is our chance to bring a disc that we've discovered recently to the table and talk about it. So, uh, well, Jeremy, what have you brought? Well, I've bought a new disc called Western Moods, which is by Ensemble Esperanza, who are a very young pan-global chamber orchestra. They were founded at the International Academy of Music in Liechtenstein in 2015, and they kind of get together occasionally, coming from all over the globe. They're all aged between about 18 and 25, so they're, you know, really young. And they've done two discs already so far. One's called Nordic Suites. The next one was called Southern Tunes. Now we've got Western Moods, so you can see where we're going here with this. So what label are we on? It's on ARS production, and the music on it um, is largely American, though there's little bits of British influence here and there. And it kind of goes from Victor Herbert, who was in his prime at the end of the 19th century, through to modern takes on the likes of um, Jimi Hendrix, Rolling Stones, and then there's the likes of Barber and people like that in between. Now, it's beautifully played. It's largely string ensemble stuff, but there's occasional moments with saxophone in there as well. But the one piece which really stood out for me, which I'd never heard before, was Alan Hove Harness's Memory of an Artist. Um, it was written in 1958, and there's very few recordings of it around. The artist in question was Sarah Berman, who was a Ukraine-born painter who was heavily involved in the US rights movement, and she died in 1957. Now, I want to play the third movement of this, or the beginning of the third movement, which I think is very beautiful.
Oh, that's very beautiful. Lovely stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed that very much. Um, so, uh, can we see uh, Ensemble Esperanza in, in this country in, in, anytime soon? Are they are they appearing at all? Their website doesn't give any details of any future performances. I think you just have to keep an eye on when they. I think they meet when they meet, and then that's it. And you have to just keep an eye on, mm. on it. Well, lucky. it sounds a very broadcastable disc. Mm. Actually, yeah, it sounds yeah. the kind of thing that we'll hear on our radios um, uh, very soon. Um, I'm going to take us into um, a new recording, actually, on the Soli Deo Gloria album, uh, which is um, the Monte Verdi Choir and John Elliott Gardner's um, uh, outfit. And this is a very personal project. This is John Elliott Gardner's Love Is Come Again, and it's a collection of music um, that was originally used to accompany an Easter play at his mother's local church, which used to stage every year. Um, and, um, you know, back in the 60s, John Elliott would come down from Cambridge and go to uh, go to the local church and help out. And it sort of reminds me of sort of the Archer's Ambridge Christmas panto, you know, the time when all the, all the village comes together, the local farmer, the friends, family, and, and sort of perform music and, I suppose, to celebrate Easter, Passiontide, um, and what John Elliott Gardner and Monteverdi Choir has done is is recreate this music, to so recreate the programme. Anyway, there's a beautiful performance of Thomas Morley's Ehu, They Have Taken Jesus. It's the words that Mary Magdalene says at the tomb in response to the angels, why are you weeping? Um, and, I, and I love it, and it's just very intimate and beautifully performed. So that was um, sung in English, a translation by John Elliott Gardner from the original Latin, except, as Jeremy pointed out, the Ahu, which was originally Latin anyway, which means alas. Anyway, Freya, <laughs> let, let's move on to your recording. So I have brought Jeremy Denk, the pianist. Um, he has done a new album with Nonsuch Records, uh, and it's called Circa 1300 to Circa 2000, which doesn't sound quite as good when you say it as when you say it. Um, <laughs> So he came up with this idea. It's a compilation disc, basically, and he came up with the idea after the Lincoln Centre asked him to come up with an unusual recital programme, whatever that might mean. So he basically tries to sweep through kind of classical music history, going right through from Renaissance to current day, basically, and medieval, actually, is even in there. Um, and it's just, it's really incredible how he kind of... the. It's not in time order necessarily, but it's sort of you get a real journey throughout. Um, and his playing is obviously stunning. Um, and he kind of he plays the much older works with a kind of modern inflection, but not too much that it's sort of a bit twee and tongue in cheeks. So we're actually going to listen to the the final track of the album by French composer Binchois um, from the 15th century. So they sort of do a turn right at the end and go back to the sort of beginning of musical history. Um, and yeah, it's kind of weird to listen to a track in isolation from this disc because it kind of, the effect is the overall thing. So yes, we're going to listen to the last track anyway. So that was Binchois' Triste Plaisir from Jeremy Denk's album Circa 1300, Circa 2000. So the pleasure of sadness. 
Yes, we've happy, all been very melancholy sad. this month. We have been, haven't we? I, I wish more uh, pianists, more instrumentalists would, would sort of use modern instruments and explore ancient yeah. music. I, I think it's not a, that, that it's a, an original idea is a bit of a shame because, mm. you know, the, some of that music sounds gorgeous on the modern piano. Mm, it does. It just completely makes it a different piece of music when you listen to other recordings of it. Yeah. yeah. So down with Beethoven, up with Bouchoir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that brings us to the end of uh, this month's podcast. Join us again for uh, another episode. It'll be the May issue we'll be talking about. So it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast.